gets high on a mountain, the warm winds are blowing, and where the winds are blowing to, there ain't no way of knowing. Mountain grass is short. Hello, my name is Ayana Young, and I welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild, where we explore radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Civilization took millennia to congeal, and in the last few hundred years, it's really accelerated its world takeover. The health of the world's plant and animal species has inversely plummeted, where now species extinctions are in the hundreds per day, and the wounded remnants of ecosystems are finally succumbing to desertification, which is evident in over two-thirds of the planet. Joining us today to help us interpret these patterns of history and how to break them is author Derek Jensen. Derek Jensen is a philosopher, teacher, and radical activist. He is the winner of numerous awards and honors, including the Eric Hoffer Book Award, USA Today's Critic Choice Award, and Press Action's Person of the Year. He is the author of over 20 books, including Endgame, A Language Older Than Words, and Dreams. And he regularly stirs packed auditoriums across the country with revolutionary spirit. Derek, I am so honored to speak with you. I was actually introduced to your work at the Occupy Wall Street Library, where my partner, March, he borrowed a copy of Deep Green Resistance. And interestingly enough, that night, Homeland Security came in and raided the park and confiscated all the books and actually took them off to be destroyed. But amazingly, Deep Green Resistance survived and we would read it out loud in Central Park, and that memory just stuck with me. And that book was really a turning point in my life. You were just such a hero to me, so thank you so much for being on the show. What a kind thing to say. Thank you for all of that, and thank you for your work, and I'm glad to be here. You mentioned a writer who inspired you, who wrote, quote, When you lie to readers, whether the lie is something as small as an incorrect word, or as large as a wrong idea, you are stealing from them, stealing their time and stealing their hearts and minds, end quote. You've clearly taken that advice to heart as you are fearless to follow the truth all the way to the origins of the murder of nature. You've written so movingly about your own childhood traumas and you're unafraid to take idols like Gandhi off their pedestals or critique liberalism. So Maybe we can start by contrasting liberal and radical and go into how those concepts relate to deep ecology versus shallow environmentalism. Wow, you don't mess around with your questions. It's a fabulous question. You know, so many indigenous people have said to me that the first and most important thing that we have to do is to decolonize our hearts and minds. And one of the most important things that... that oppressors try to do, and this is true whether we're talking about an individual abuser in a domestic violence situation or whether we're talking about, um, you know, the U.S. government or whatever it is we're talking about, but one of the important things to do is for them to get us to identify with them, to identify more with their perspective than with our own, and or with those we love, the perspective of those we love. And so I think that one of the first and most important things we have to do 
is to break our loyalty to the system and to make our loyalty to the land where we live and to make our loyalty to the land base and to the real earth. An example I use of this that is just kind of silly, but it works, is you know, a friend of mine called me up a while back, back when the United States was invading Iraq for the you know, 18 bazillionth time, and said, how much longer do you think we're going to be in Iraq? And I looked around and I said, we're in Iraq? I thought we're in Northern California. And then my friend said, how much longer do you think we're going to have troops in Iraq? And I said, I got troops? Holy crap, will they do what I tell them? And he said, yeah, this is when I call you once every six weeks. Or another example, this was just a year or two ago that I was talking to my mom, and my mom said, um, oh, it's just terrible that we torture. I said, mom, you torture, really? And she said, you know, I'm 82 years old, I'm your mother, don't do this to me. And the point is that even on that level, we identify with the system you know, how can we make the U.S. economy grow? I mean, do we really want the U.S. economy to grow? Do we really want the U.S. economy to exist? I'm not interested in what is best for the economy. I'm interested in what is best for the Colorado River. I'm really interested in what is best for the Smith River here where I live. I'm really interested in what's best for the salmon. I'm really interested in what's best for the land base. One of my books, What We Leave Behind, the central question of that book is, or the central answer of that book is understanding that the measure by which we'll be judged and the measure by which we should be judged is do we leave the world a better place by having been here? And by world, I don't mean capitalism. I don't mean industrial civilization. I mean the real physical world. And this is a really important topic for environmentalism because in the past 30 years or so, past 40 years, whatever, a lot of the environmental movement has been completely hijacked away from being about protecting wild places and wild creatures and wild plants to being about perpetuating the culture for a little bit longer. So this is how you can get just this whole sort of high-tech sustainability movement that has nothing to do with sustainability. It's not about sustaining the real world, helping the real world to sustain itself. It's all about sustaining this destructive culture. And that's a terrible, terrible hijack. I think it's desperately important for us to think very clearly about to whom we are loyal. If you are loyal to the agricultural industry in Arizona and Las Vegas and Nevada and the agricultural industry and the cities in Southern California, then it can make sense to dewater the Colorado River. But if your loyalty is to the river and those non-humans and humans who actually depend upon the river, then you will make entirely different decisions. There's a great line by R.D. Lang about how, how we perceive the world affects how we behave in the world. And if you perceive the world as consisting of industrial civilization and the real world is getting a job, then you're going to behave in one way. But if the real world is your own embodied life and the embodied life of the forest and the embodied life of the river, then you're going to have an entirely different set of responses. And then the other part, you mentioned the liberal and radical. And my friend Kathleen Dean Moore, uh, she's one of the few philosophers who really makes any sense to me. I asked her one time, what can one person do? And her answer is brilliant, which is not be one person. And this goes to the heart of the liberal versus radical question that Radical really means going to the roots of something 
and the liberal model and the neoliberal model are both based on individualism and how this affects your desire for or how you believe social change takes place is really crucial that the liberal would believe that the way by which social change takes place is through individual education that if we can just make personal changes and if we can just then propagate these personal changes to others that will somehow affect society and a radical believes that yeah education is important of course but the real point is to change the social means of propagating power and that the problem is not that the CEO just doesn't understand that the river is a living being the problem is that the CEO is socially rewarded by the mechanisms of power in society for destroying the river and the radical believes that while well, education plays a role the primary point is to change or destroy the means of oppressive power. It's like my friend Lear Keith always says, the task of an activist is not to navigate systems of oppressive authority with as much personal integrity as possible. The task of an activist is to take down those systems of oppressive authority. And it's an entirely different approach, really, in that it comes from the understanding that there are no personal solutions to social problems this leads one down an entirely different path than believing that one can solve social problems through personal solutions. And this is tied into also the notion that the 1980s were really the first time that the corporate newspapers called citizens consumers more often than it called them citizens. And this is really important too because if you can convince people that they are consumers, then their choices of resistance are either buy or don't buy. If you understand that you're a citizen and not a consumer, then your choices are buy, not buy, organize, don't organize, petition, boycott, and when a government becomes destructive of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, except I would say it's the, the responsibility. And my point is that you can revolt. And then there's another transformation that took place several thousand years ago, which I think is just as crucial and just as wrenching, which is when we were convinced to become citizens as opposed to human animals who need community and who need habitat. Because if you're a human animal with claws and teeth, you will defend that habitat and you will defend your community to the death. As opposed to if you're a citizen, you've been convinced that the government is supposed to take care of everything. And I know I'm jumping all over the place, so I hope that this is at least remotely comprehensible. Oh, it absolutely is. And for those of for those listening who are not acquainted with your work or the anti-civilization movement, would you mind just giving a quick synopsis of the premises that underlie your writing? Yeah, and thank you for that question, too. We can go two directions with this, at least. One of the directions is that they say that one sign of intelligence is the ability to recognize patterns. Well, I'm going to lay out a pattern. Let's see if we can recognize it in less than 6,000 years, which is one of the first written myths of this culture is of Gilgamesh deforesting the plains and hillsides of Iraq. When people think of Iraq, is the first thing they think of cedar forests so thick that sunlight never touched the ground. That's how it was prior to the beginnings of this culture. The Near East was heavily forested. Saudi Arabia was an oak savanna. Um, we've all heard of the cedars of Lebanon, you know, but they've been cut down. Um, the forests of North Africa were cut down to make the Phoenician and Egyptian navies. Greece was heavily forested. Italy was heavily forested. 
it's such a clear pattern. You know, there were, do you know why there are no penguins in the Northern Hemisphere? There were, they were called great auks, and they were the equivalent of the penguin. And there were so many that on just one island in the St. Lawrence River, an explorer from France said that they could fill every ship in France and it wouldn't make a dent. Well, they did fill every ship in France and it did make a dent. And it, the last one was killed in the 19th century. And there were, there were six times as many passenger pigeons as all other birds in North America combined. And they were eradicated. Um, it was said that a squirrel could have jumped from the Mississippi to, could have run from the Mississippi to the East Coast without ever touching the ground, just across the tops of trees. Um, this is a, a pattern we see everywhere. I did a talk, an Earth at Risk conference down in um, San Francisco Bay Area before, um, or last, last year, and before the talk, one of the things I wanted to do was to talk about what San Francisco area was like prior to conquest. And the early European explorers described that there were so many sea lions that it looked as though the, the, the entire bay was paved with sea lions. And there were so many whales, evidently the whale, whale's breath stinks, I didn't know that. And evidently there's so many whales that it would stink from their breath. And there were, quote, troops, end quote, of grizzly bears. And of course there aren't any grizzly bears at all in California now if you don't count the ones that are in zoos. And this is what this culture does, is forests precede it and deserts dog its heels. And, you know, I'm not against civilization because I hate hot showers or CDs of Beethoven's Ninth. I hate civilization because I'm capable of doing really simple math. And I understand that if you have 100 units and then you have take one away, you've got 99. And then you take another away, you've got 98 and then 97. And if you keep subtracting, you end up at zero. It's just I can see this really simple pattern. And so now, let's back up a second. And I want to be really clear. The problem we face is not a human problem. By which I mean, not all humans have destroyed their land base. I live in far northern California in the Redwoods. And the Talawa Indians lived here for at least 12,500 years, if you believe the myths of science. If you believe the myths of the Talawa, they lived here since the beginning of time. But in any case, they lived here for a very, very long time. They lived here for at least 12,500 years without destroying the place. And the dominant culture has been here for about 180 years, and the place is trashed. And so you would think that with all the world at stake, we would ask ourselves, what are some of the differences between these ways of living, one of which leads to hot showers and CDs of Beethoven's Ninth, and also the murder of the planet, and the other does not. And there's a few differences I want to talk about real fast. One of them is that civilization, you know, if you look up the word in the dictionary, uh, it will say things like an advanced or high form of culture. That's meaningless. What does advanced mean? What does high mean? What, what, and it's, it's propaganda. What actually is it in a value-neutral sense? And the definition I've been able to come up with that I'm really happy with, which is defensible both linguistically and historically, is civilization is a way of life characterized by the growth of cities. And that's true, once again, both linguistically and historically. Civilization comes from the root that means kivitetas, which means state or city. And that's, once again, the pattern that you see everywhere. Civilizations are characterized by cities. That's nice, Derek, but what's a city? 
So I've defined the city as people living in numbers large enough to require the importation of resources. Now, two things happen functionally. Remember, we're talking about the difference between liberal and radical. We'll get to that in a second again. Two things happen functionally when you require the importation of resources. One of them is that your way of life can never be sustainable. Because if you require the importation of resources, it means you've denuded the landscape of that particular resource. And as your city grows, you'll denude an ever larger area. And that is functional. There's, it doesn't matter whether you are really groovy and a pacifist. It doesn't matter if you're a vegetarian. It doesn't matter how pure you are in your lifestyle and your thoughts. If you have numbers large enough that you're denuding the landscape with that resource, you're harming the land base. And you are, as your city grows, you will require a larger area to be denuded. And the second thing it means is that your way of life must be based on militarism and violence. And the reason this is the case is because if you require a certain resource and the people in the next watershed over won't trade you for it, then you're going to take it because you require it. And so this is what we mean by radical analysis, that it is the material conditions that are pushing the destruction. So yes, we need to educate people about these material conditions, but simply educating them and getting them to think nicer thoughts doesn't change the material conditions. Um, one more thing I want to say about this is this is all tied into agriculture because what agriculture does, and agriculture is, is tied intimately with the, with the growth of cities, what agriculture does is it takes a piece of land and it, um, what plow-based agriculture does especially, is it takes a piece of land and it destroys all of the, it's, it's biotic cleansing down to the level of bacteria. You turn over the soil, what you're doing with a plow is you're killing everybody. And you're converting it all to use by your people. And then what that allows you to do is to grow more people because you're growing less squirrels and you're growing fewer salmon and you're growing fewer orangutans and growing fewer of everybody else. But you're converting all that to human use so it allows you to get more humans on that land but what it does also is destroy the capacity of that land to support anybody, including humans, in the long run. And so what that does is that also ties you into this cycle of once you have destroyed the capacity of your land to feed humans, what you're going to do is either A, collapse, or B, expand. This ties back into that militarism. And these are functional problems. And you would think once again, that with all the world at stake, we would be having intense and important discussions about this. But there's this great line by Upton Sinclair, uh, excuse the sexism, it's his line, um, it's hard to make a man understand something when his job depends on him not understanding it. And I've modified that some to be, it's hard to make people understand something when their entitlement and privilege depends on them not understanding it. Uh, one more thing I want to mention about all this is that there was an article recently, maybe a, a few months ago, in the New York Times, an editorial called An Arc for the Anthropocene. And leave aside the term Anthropocene for a second. And the article was all about how environmentalists are trying to have to make an arc to save some creatures through this mass extinction that this culture is causing. And how they have to make really difficult decisions as to should we save the Sumatran rhino or should we save this bat who is endangered or should we save uh, the orangutans? Who do we save? Because we only have limited amounts of money. 
there were several things that really bothered me about the editorial, not the least of which was the thing, the, the main thing that bothered me about the article was a bunch of things, but one of them that was that they were talking very sort of cavalierly about, oh, just letting all these creatures go, but what was never discussed in the article was the possibility of losing any technologies. That was not on the table. What is on the table are the um, continued existence of migratory songbirds or of amphibians. What is not on the table is the continued existence of the internet, the continued existence of computers, the continued existence of corporations, of GMOs, of insecticides, and on and on. And there is no possibility of positive change when the things that are actually killing the planet are not attended to. And that's probably one of the, one of the central parts of my work. You know, I keep thinking of this image of there's somebody is brought into the emergency room and they're bleeding out. They've been stabbed 200 times and they're bleeding out. And all the doctors and the nurses and everybody else, they're applying bandages as quickly as they can to try to stop the blood, the blood loss. But as they're doing this, the person who was stabbing the person in the first place continues to stab them and they don't stop the person stabbing them. And it seems like that's so much of what we're doing is that we're trying to figure out ways to, you know, slow the damage. And, and don't get me wrong, my heroes are the people who are on the front lines protecting, you know, pieces of land, protecting jaguars, you know, trying desperately to make it so the uh, Colorado River once again reaches the ocean. People desperately trying to protect, th these are my heroes. But that doesn't alter the fact that we're not attending to the primary damage. Oh, here's one more example. There are more than 400 dead zones on the planet in the oceans. And precisely one of these dead zones has recovered, which gives me great solace, by the way, that one actually recovered. You know how it recovered? It's in the Black Sea and the Soviet Union collapsed, which made it so it was no longer economically feasible to do agriculture in certain areas along the coast of the Black Sea. And you remove the primary damage and the dead zone disappeared. But there is no hope to stop dead zones as long as you keep creating the conditions that cause them. So many people say, gosh, I hope that coho salmon survive. But when they say they hope that coho salmon survive, they're not really saying they hope coho salmon survive. What they're saying is that they hope coho salmon survive without removing dams, without stopping industrial logging, without stopping industrial fishing, without stopping the murder of the oceans, and without stopping global warming. And the truth is you can't save coho salmon without stopping those things. And if you did stop those things, you could probably save coho salmon. So what I'm really interested in is figuring out what are these material conditions that need to change and then changing them. Well, I definitely agree with the advent of civilization and agriculture 10,000 years ago and how that has spiraled us into this death machine. But I often think about how land-based cultures also pushed animals to extinction. There's a book by Ronald Wright, and he talks about the large mammals of North America. There used to be giant sloths here, and um, other large mammals that we no longer have. That extinction happened before agriculture began. So do you think that human animals have always had this capacity for destruction? 
Well, first, there's there's a an essay that I really recommend anybody who wants to talk about the Pleistocene overkill hypothesis read. It's by Eugene Hun, and he talks about how just on a physical level, the Pleistocene overkill hypothesis is not true. That they were probably killed by the changing climate at the end of the Ice Age. Um, it would have been in order for humans to have actually caused those extirpations on North and South America, they would have, he did the math, and that, they would have had to eat like 18,000 calories a day. And that's simply not how hunter-gatherers work. They don't kill more than they need, which doesn't alter the fact that there have been places, especially on islands, where land-based peoples have harmed the land and killed especially large, large creatures. Just North America is not a really good example of that. And there's also examples in North America of humans living in ways that have not been sustainable, such as the mound builders and, and the Aztecs and the Mayans. Those are civilizations, too, with all of the problems attendant thereby. Um, so, so there's that. And then another part of all this is let's pretend for a second that the Pleistocene overkill hypothesis is true, which I don't, I don't accept the hypothesis. I really, once again, Eugene Hahn, read, read his essay. It's very short, 10, 15 pages. He completely skewers it. Anyway, um, let's pretend for a second that that is true. Can't they learn? Once again, accepting that thesis, we could say that maybe 10,000 years ago, there were um, some people saying, you know, the giant beavers are disappearing and the ground slots are disappearing. And then they changed the stories of how they live because stories are what teach us to be good or bad people stories are how we learn how to be human and if the stories you're told are that you should go forth and multiply then that's what you're going to do and if the stories that are told to you are that you should um, not take more salmon than you need then that's how you'll live too and we hear all the time that indigenous peoples have some sort of spiritual and mystical connection with the natural world. And that certainly is true in many ways. And I've, I've heard salmon welcoming songs that are sung by people as the salmon first come up. And they're beautiful and moving. But that doesn't alter the fact that, for example, along the Columbia River, there were hard-headed treaties that held for hundreds and hundreds of years as to how many salmon each different people could take. And that would leave enough salmon for... Um, people upriver, and it would leave enough salmon for the bears, and it would leave enough salmon for everybody else. It was not simply that they had this, you know, cosmic spiritual relationship. It's it's in addition that there were hard-headed ways to deal with this. I know among the Lakota, I read this that they had rules as to who could take bison and how many, and if someone would break those rules, um, they would be told not to, and if they continued to break those rules. They would come in and they would um, take their horses, take their dogs, destroy their teepee. They would destroy all their weapons and basically reduce them to beggary. So it's like Garrett Hardin wrote this, this essay back in the 1950s, which I find really problematical. It's very famous. It's the tragedy of the commons. Well, his story is basically that you have a common area that is shared by everybody in the community. And his example, I think, is sheep, that everybody can run, I don't know, five sheep on it. And so everybody runs five sheep on it, but then what happens is one person cheats and runs six, somebody else cheats and runs six, somebody else cheats and runs seven, and they keep cheating until the commons are destroyed. But that's completely wrong. That's not actually how a commons works. That's the tragedy, the failure of the commons. Here's how a commons really works, is you've got this community, everybody gets to run five sheep on it. 
great, everybody runs five sheep, and then I start to run six sheep, and I start to run seven sheep. What happens is everybody in the community comes over to my house and says, Derek, that's really uncool. You can't run six or seven sheep. And then I say, okay, I'm sorry. And then I keep running seven sheep. I run eight sheep. I run nine sheep. You come over again. You say, Derek, that's a really bad idea. That is not acceptable behavior. I say, tough luck. It's a commons. I'm going to run what I want. So then you burn down my house. There are enforced rules that make it so you behave differently. It's like Ruth Benedict, the anthropologist, wanted to figure out why some cultures are generally pretty happy. Women are treated well. Children are treated well. There's not a lot of war. And other cultures, people can be surly and nasty, and children are treated poorly, women are treated poorly, there's a lot of war, among indigenous peoples too. And this is not simply civilized people. Why is it that some cultures have these different arrangements? It's not magic. And she figured out, you know, it's not race, it's not house size, it's not climate, it's not any of these other things. Some of it's very simple. The good cultures had figured out ways, they, they understand that humans are both selfish and social. We are selfish, we want things, but we're also social and we want social praise. So what they do is they praise behavior that benefits the group as a whole and disallow behavior that benefits the individual at the expense of the group. And a great example of this is that, uh, well, on the other hand, the cultures that are surly and nasty and have a lot of competition, a lot of war, they reward the individual at the expense of the group. And that makes all the difference. So there's so many examples of this. This one group of people in South Africa, if you would go hunting and you would kill some animal, if you didn't share that, everybody would laugh at you like a hyena and they would shame you. And there was something called a shaming pole among the people, the Pacific, some of the people in the Pacific Northwest. And if you do something really bad, they put this outside your home. It basically says, I'm a jerk. Social rewards, and then the reward behavior. So basically the way it would work is that I go out and I catch a bunch of salmon. And if I try to hoard it and try to then sell it to everybody, I'm going to be socially shunned. And I will be socially disrewarded for that. On the other hand, if I get it and then I give it to everybody, it's like, wow, Derek, you're really great. And one reason that I can do all this is because I know that tomorrow you're going to go gathering and you're going to gather a bunch of huckleberries and you will distribute those to everybody. Because right now, the way capitalism works, I could go downtown and give all my money to a homeless person, how am I going to pay the rent next month? You know, what's being built in these good cultures that Ruth Benedict talked about are social relations. And it all comes down to how a culture handles wealth. That it handles wealth through what she called a siphon system, whereby wealth is constantly siphoned from rich to poor, then everybody's going to feel very secure. We don't have to be in competition with each other. If, on the other hand, um, wealth is handled through what she called a funnel system, whereby wealth is constantly funneled from everybody to the rich and wealth is concentrated, you're going to end up with ruthless competition and hatred. It's inevitable, really. But once again, these are the material conditions. It's a radical analysis. So my point having to do with your question is, let's pretend that that's absolutely right and they screwed up and they wiped out these animals. I would guess that there were conflicts being had within the community and I think it was Max Planck who said that the way scientific revolutions take place is not because one side convinces the other, but it's because the side who believes the other perspective on it dies out. So basically you can have the, what I don't know what the two models are for atoms, but you know, one's a planetary model and the other is some other model. And 
it what didn't happen that people who believed one model convinced the other. What happened is the others just grew old and then died, and the new generation believed something different. And so perhaps they were wiping out the the giant beavers, and people were saying, that's terrible, you shouldn't do it. And they were just like right-wingers, anti-environmentalists today saying, no, 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 we get to do it. It's personal liberty. We get to kill anything we want. And then eventually people saw what was happening and stopped. I'm not saying that the Talawa were perfect. I'm not saying anything like that. What I do know is they lived here for 12,500 years, and when the Europeans arrived, rivers were black and roiling with salmon. They were living here for all intents and purposes, they were living here sustainably. That's what I know. Part of it is a, a sort of cosmic relation with the salmon. Once again, there were salmon welcoming songs. Once again, they believed that the salmon were not resources to be exploited, but other beings to enter into a relationship with. That's all true, but they also had social means to prevent overkill. I was reading, upon your recommendation, trauma expert Judith Herman, and she was describing the dynamic between perpetrator and victim in an abusive domestic situation. And it sounded uncannily like the relationship of government and populace. You know, there's this control over every aspect of our lives, forbidding autonomy, coercion through a mix of force and enticement, um, demanding respect, avoiding scrutiny. So can you comment on these patterns of coercion that are found throughout our culture, as well as inside the patriarch's home? And, and maybe the second part of that question is, how is patriarchy and the hatred of women related to the environmental justice issues? Wow, these are fabulous questions. Thank you. So, you know, people ask me sometimes where, where my journey started with all this stuff. And part of it is that you know, my father was extremely violent. Um, my brother has epilepsy from blows to the head. He broke my sister's arm. He raped my mother, my sister, and me. And... You know, even when I was a kid, I was asking the question, if his behavior isn't making him happy, why is he doing it? And, you know, that's basically, in many ways, the same question I'm asking today about the dominant culture. And the point is that I was introduced pretty early to these dynamics of power and how they get replicated. And I think a lot about this line by R.D. Lang, which is he came up with the three rules of a dysfunctional family. Rule A is don't. Rule A1 is rule A does not exist. And rule A2 is never discuss the existence or non-existence of rules A, A1, or A2. And so what this meant within my own family is we could talk about whatever we wanted except for the violence that we had to pretend wasn't happening. And it's the same thing on the larger scale that we can talk all we want about you know, how the San Francisco Giants are doing in baseball or you know, we can talk all we want about whether the Democrats or Republicans should control the House and Senate and presidency, but we can't talk about the real issues that are underlying these problems. It's, this is how environmentalism can get so sucked away, too, such that you know we can end up talking about, gosh, do you want solar photovoltaics or windmills? But we're not actually given the option of choosing amphibians, migratory songbirds, and bats. You know, It is not allowed to speak about the fact that this culture is killing the planet. It's this culture. It's, it's not you know, one part of this culture, and it's not all humans, it's this culture. That's one of the things we can't talk about. So, so what are some of the forms of coercion that we get? I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's in our, you know, I keep thinking about 
the movies Dr. Zhivago and Straw Dogs and V for Vendetta, so many movies will have this scene where a man basically goes in and starts to rape a woman. And at the start of the scene, she's pushing him away. And by the end of the scene, she's pulling him close. And the version of V for Vendetta is that he kidnaps a woman, puts her in solitary confinement, and then one of the first things she says when she gets out is, I don't remember if it's, I've missed you or I love you. It's something like that. And what that is, is that's the standard pornographic rape fantasy. I don't know if you are familiar with Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree, but I just wrote a version of that story as told by the tree. And it's completely different. The Giving Tree is all about how this little boy basically plays in a tree and the tree loves him and he loves the tree, supposedly, except he's, he likes to play King of the Forest. And then he um, says to the tree that I want some money, so give me your apples. And she says, oh, I'd love for you to take the apples and go sell them in the city. So he does that. Then he comes back later and he says, you know, I want a house, so give me your branches. He says, yes, you can have my, house, my branches to have a house. And later he says, you know, I'm still not happy. I want to build a boat, so give me your trunk. So she, he cuts off the trunk, and she's happy with all this. And then at the end, he's tired, and he just wants to sit. He says, yeah, sit on my stump, and that makes her happy. And this is a terrible, terrible story. It's pre- if it were presented as a cautionary tale of how abuse works, it'd be a good story, but it's not. It's a huge bestseller with all sorts of people saying, this is what love is supposed to be. No, this is actually what codependence and abuse looks like. And my point in bringing that up is that, once again, humans are social creatures, and we learn how to be humans through these stories. And one of the ways that the abuse perpetuates itself is through the telling of these stories. It's like George Gerbner. I interviewed him years ago. I was so delighted to talk with him. He's the TV violence guy. He's dead now. He was the TV violence guy. He was, you know, when people say there are, you know, seven acts of violence per hour on TV or whatever it is they say, they were doing his studies, which he'd been doing since the 50s, of just watching what's on TV. And when I talked to him, he said, look, violence is not the point. The point is not how many acts of violence are on TV. The point is that violence is a social relation And the important thing is who does what to whom in a movie. So what he said, and this is why Mad Max Fury Road is making such a big deal in some ways, is that if you have a movie about where Bruce Willis is in and he's a cop, then he can kill 25 people in the first 30 seconds, and that's perfectly okay because A, he's white, B, he's a male, and C, he's a cop. But if you have a woman, um, you can't have her kill anybody without the whole movie being about how did she come to do something like that. And so, once again, that's how... So he would test how many men killed how many women in movies, how many men killed women and suffered no consequences, how many white people would kill how many people of color and suffer no consequences, how many cops would kill people and suffer no consequences. And this is how this is propagated in one way. Of course, it's also propagated through direct violence. Robin Morgan has this great line about anywhere in the world any woman can be walking alone late at night, and if she hears footfalls behind her, she has reason to be afraid. And that is also how this is propagated, is through direct violence. And so the system propagates itself on those ways, and it also propagates itself, what do you do in classes? What we do in classes is we pledge allegiance to the flag. I mean, that's how it gets propagated, is that is pledging our allegiance, our loyalty to this system that doesn't serve us well. And so, one of the extraordinary things about this whole system is how comprehensive 
the training is, and there's this great line by Robert Coombs that unquestioned beliefs are the real authorities of any culture. And so, oh, here's a great example. There was a southern pro-slavery philosopher in the 1830s writing to his northern abolitionist buddy about the land ownership conditions, once again, the material conditions under which slavery was the best option for capitalists and under which it was not. And it's all very simple. If there's a lot of land and not many people, then it is in the capitalist's best interest to own the slaves because the only way you can get them to work for you is the point of a gun because if there's a lot of land and not many people, people have access to land, which means they have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they have access to self-sufficiency, which means there's no way they're going to work for you. On the other hand, if you have a lot of people and not much land, or if you can convince everybody that all the land is owned by the rich people, then the people don't have access to land, which means they don't have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they don't have access to self-sufficiency, which means that they will have to work for you or they will starve. And my point in bringing this up right now is that's yet another way. We come to accept the fact that we have to pay rent in order to live on this planet. And we have to pay for food. And those are incredibly abusive ideas. This ties back to the abuse because one of the first things any abuser does is they attempt to remove their abuse victim from all sources of outside support, make them dependent upon the abuser. And this is true when we're talking about an individual abuser, and this is true when we're talking about this larger social abuse. You know, I used to have this habit of asking people if they like their jobs. About 90% say no. So why are they doing it? They're doing it because they have to pay rent, and they have to pay for food, and then after that they have to pay for their various addictions, like you know, computer, like all the, all the goodies that, that then um, we end up getting bribed into um, believing are necessary but, um, but further tie us to the system. And so it's, it's propagated, you know, I've sort of ju just jumped over the surface, it's propagated on every level, but if I had to say the two levels at which I think it's most central are one is abusers will remove the support system of their victims, which is necessary to make them dependent upon the abuser, because otherwise nobody's going to put up with it. And the second thing is what Judith Herman called monopolization of perception, where you have to come to see everything from the abuser's perspective. And this is really hard, and it's really, you know, it happens once again on a larger scale with us saying, we torture, when it's actually they torture. And there's, you know, the pogo line about we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. And that's just a, a dreadful, dreadful line. That's the line of somebody who's completely tied into the abusive system. And then on the personal level, too, it can happen. Something I've talked about a lot, not here, obviously, but something I've talked about a lot over the years is that in my personal life, I have a one-strike-year-out policy for people who are mean. And, you know, people, we all say stupid things, you know, and I can be talking to a friend, the friend can say something hurtful. That's no big deal. But there's a difference between that and meanness. If somebody's mean, they get one opportunity, and then I kick them out of my life. And the reason I do this is not because I'm so smart and enlightened and, and great and everything else. The reason I do this is because I was trained so well as a kid to take the perpetrator's perspective that if somebody is mean to me, I can feel it, but then within a couple days, sometimes with even a couple hours, I can have their perspective completely rationalized so that they're right and I'm wrong. My point is that this is after, you know, decades of working on these issues and 12 years of therapy and all sorts of other stuff. I, it took me 12 years of therapy and decades of working on it to get to the point where I go, wow, I have to get them out of my life. 
I can't change that on the inside. I still identify with them. And that's, that's how deeply we are inculcated into the system and how much we have to unmake. There's this great line by Chekhov where he said that um, some kid came to him, some young person came to him and said, I want to write a story, but I don't know what about. And Chekhov said, I want you to write a story about squeezing every drop of slave's blood out of yourself. You know, that's really one of the things that we have to do is to, this takes us back to the beginning, we have to break our identification with the perpetrator, the abuser. We have to not take their side, but instead make our loyalty to the victims of the perpetrators. And that's one of the hardest things to do. But then once you do it, everything starts becoming really clear. What you do in response becomes really technical. You know, once we make our loyalty absolute to um, the victims of domestic violence, or once we make our loyalty absolute to the salmon, suddenly the solutions become much more clear. The solutions are only really muddy when you're trying to both save the victim and placate the perpetrator. Oh, there's another thing I want to say, too, which is that um, Lundy Bancroft has this great book called Why Does He Do That? Inside the Minds of Angry and Controlling Men. He talks about perpetrators of abuse. I mean, it's a cliche that addicts don't generally change their behavior until they hit bottom. And a lot of people say, well, gosh, when is this culture going to hit bottom? The problem is, and Bancroft made this clear, the perpetrators of abuse don't generally change because they're not actually addicted to something that's harming them. They're not addicted to heroin that's tearing apart their veins. They are addicted to power over others. And when someone is addicted to power over others, it's not them who hits bottom, it's everybody else who hits bottom. So this is why perpetrators of domestic violence have a huge rate of recidivism. They almost never change. And this is why the dominant culture is not, one of the reasons the dominant culture is not going to change on its own. And see, there's another question, is that my talks, a lot of times I used to ask, how many people believe that this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living? Nobody would ever say yes. And like literally one person out of every 5,000 would say yes. And so the next question is, if you don't believe the culture is going to undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living, what does that mean you care about the world? What does that mean for your strategy and for your tactics? And the answer is we don't know. And the reason we don't know is because we don't talk about it. And one of the reasons we don't talk about it is because we're all so busy pretending that there is going to be this voluntary transformation. But that's part of this transformation I'm talking about to transferring your allegiance to the, to the, um, to the victims is if you understand there's not going to be voluntary transformation and you want to save salmon, what does that mean you're going to do? And it opens up an entire different world of possibilities. Wow, well, thank you for giving us that spectacular foundation for understanding the death urge of this culture. And my reading list just got longer, so that's wonderful. Um, and so a question about Deep Green Resistance, talking about what are we going to do in starting these conversations. Um, so Deep Green Resistance is essentially a manual for organizing effective ecological resistance interspersed with radical theory. And for many years, you've taught that tangible resistance is a necessary part of stopping the omnicide of life on Earth. And in DGR, you get specific about the structure. So I'm wondering if you can explain how an effective resistance can be built and what would we be in store for if uh, we were able to have a forced collapse? Well, first... I want to say that every cell in my body wants for us to have a voluntary transformation. 
and I just don't believe it's going to happen, and I'm not willing to sacrifice the Earth on that false belief. If I were made, um, you know, dictator of the economy, I would recognize that capitalism is based on subsidies, and I would change the subsidies. So I would take money away from the military, and take jobs away from um, destructive activities, and subsidize land rehabilitation. Subsidize. You know, I, well, first thing I would do is I would outlaw retractable stadium roofs, you know, and I would outlaw um, just incredibly destructive activities and make it so we had this gradual descent. But that's not going to happen. And so there's, I mean, there's so many questions in there that, that you ask. I mean, I guess I want to address one thing before I go to wherever we go next. People say, gosh, Derek, you must hate humans. You want to kill six billion people. And that's complete nonsense because right now there are a lot of people dying. It's just first off, I mean, are we talking about hammerhead shark people? Are we talking about uh, blue whale people? Are we talking about um, frog people? Are we talking about migratory songbird people? I mean, of course, they don't count in this rubric of what people say, gosh, you want to kill people. Well, right now the oceans are being killed. And that is also going to kill off humans, of course. But then another part of it is that years ago I asked Anuradha Mittal, former director of Food First, if the people of India would be better off if the global economy disappeared tomorrow. And she laughed and said, of course. And she said, right now there are former granaries of India that now export dog food and tulips to Europe. And the people of rural India would be better off. You know, I just read the other day that I don't remember the number. I think it was 80%. It might be 50%, but it doesn't matter. Either 50% or 80% of the people on the planet have never made nor received a phone call. And so if the phone, if the phone system disappeared tomorrow, 50% or 80% of the humans are not going to care. It will not matter to them, except that, of course, the infrastructures that are allowed by the whole phone system would not be harming their land base. I mean, there are subsistence farmers in India who are being driven off their land because of the global economy. And the same thing is happening in Africa right now. The same thing is happening all over the world. And I was able to ask Vandana Shiva last fall. It's like still bothers me. What happens to the people in Mumbai when the entire grid goes down? I mean, are the people in, in big cities going to starve? And I asked her, you know, of third world, of non-industrialized nations, you know, what would happen to the people in Mumbai? Would they starve? And she said, oh, no, they would be better off too because the reason they're in the city for the most part is not because they want to live in the slums. The reason that they're in the slums is because they too have been forced off their land and if there was no longer a large military presence to enforce their removal from land um, in order that you can ex export lima beans to Europe, then they will simply go back and do what they were doing for thousands of years or at least hundreds of years, which is their subsistence farming. Oh, here's another thing too. People say, gosh, Derek, you want to kill a lot of people. I can solve, and this is one of the ways that patriarchy ties into this, I can solve overpopulation. If I were the global dictator, I would solve overpopulation with one stroke of the pen, which is more than half of the children born right now are not wanted. And the way to reduce population without any draconian means is to give women absolute reproductive freedom all over the planet. Done deal. Or another thing we could do is what they found is that teaching girls to read, that by itself empowers them enough to reduce the number of children they are eventually forced to have. So 
we could have a voluntary transformation that was that was slow, but I don't see it. And so now back to the underground versus above ground, one of the ways I think about about the murder of the planet and think about our identification with the perpetrators of this is to think of aliens came down from outer space and they were systematically vacuuming the oceans and they're changing the climate. They're putting dachshund in every mother's breast milk and they are putting in the tar sands and they're fracking, they're causing earthquakes, they're causing sinkholes, they're doing all this crap. Um, what would and what would we do if they were space aliens who were doing it? I think we would know what to do. We would go after their infrastructure that allows them to do it. That's what you do in a war. If you want to, the, the military understands this that the way to win a war is by just not by not specifically by educating. That's part of it. But what you're really doing is destroying the enemy's capacity to wage war. That's what you do in a war. And we need to start thinking like members of a serious resistance. And we need to start thinking like, we need to start, here's the thing, is that so many of us don't know what we want. It's like, what do you want? Do you want smaller clear cuts? I want to figure out a way that I can still have hot showers yet not kill the salmon. It's like, good luck. The real question is, um, what do salmon need to survive? What does the world need to survive? And then we need to move toward it. And one of the things that needs to happen is that the murder of the planet needs to stop. And so if we're not going to have a voluntary transformation, which, by the way, also I want to be really clear that many of my heroes, I don't believe in the reform versus revolution dichotomy. I don't complain because people are using the system to try to protect wild places. We need everything. When I say that we need to use any means necessary to save the planet, that's not code language for violence. That's code language for doing anything, which includes getting into a pond to bring in egg sacs because UVB is destroying the egg sacs. So you bring them in and raise them in your kitchen. It means uh, going and doing really boring work, finding out how zoning regulations work so you can stop a, a new subdivision. It means doing whatever is necessary. That's the thing is that the distinction is not between those who believe that militant resistance is necessary and those who don't. The distinction is between those who do something and those who do nothing. And so what I want is for people, we could shut down this party completely nonviolently if we were, if we had the numbers and if we were just thinking strategically. And okay, that said, if there is going to be an underground, it needs to be absolutely separate from an above ground because we live in a panopticon. We live in a surveillance state. And um, if, if you want to be both above ground and below ground, then you may as well just go down to the local you know, NSA office for recreational mugshots. Um, so there needs to be an absolute firewall between above ground and below ground activities. Um, and one of the things that DGR is attempting to do is there needs to be an above ground that advocates for putting every option on the table. And we don't see that. And that's another thing that's really important is that you know, in the 1990s, I saw a hole in discourse that there was a lot of really beautiful nature writing and there was a lot of sort of deep ecological philosophy, but I didn't see two things. One is I didn't see any militant environmental writing. I saw militant writing by African Americans, by American Indians, some militant writing by radical feminists, but I didn't see any in the environmental movement. And another thing I didn't see is I didn't see anybody talking about this culture's death urge in terms of the environment. And instead of me just grousing about, 
oh, you know, nobody's doing this right and complaining. What I did is I saw a problem and I went to fix it. And that's what people need to do is if you see a hole in discourse, okay, if somebody doesn't like my books, that's great. Write your own books and write better books. You know, and if somebody doesn't like the work I'm doing, great. Do your own work that's better. Um, if somebody doesn't like the work that anybody's doing, you know, if, if somebody is thinks that people are trying to protect the Hudson River, but they're doing a terrible job of it, don't denounce them. Just go do a better job of it. That's what we need to do is get people who will um, see a problem and then go to fix it. And so one of the, that's one of the things that DGR is attempting to do is seeing a hole in discourse so we don't see any environmentalists talking about the necessity of bringing down the whole system. So we have to do it. You know, I've, I've got this friend, Charlotte Watson, who used to run the Battered Women's Program for the state of New York, and now she acts as an advocate for women in the, in the judicial system. She doesn't care about salmon. I mean, she might care about salmon, but that's not her issue. I would never tell her, gosh, Charlotte, you know, I need to denounce you and I need to do this because you're not caring about salmon. No, that's the great thing about everything being so messed up is no matter where you look, there's really important work to be done. And you're doing this work too. I mean, that's the thing is, you see a hole in discourse, you're filling it with your radio program. It's really great. It's, you know, we need everything that way. Well, thank you for that. And I absolutely agree that we all have gifts to share and it's about not being debilitated anymore and not being scared and not living in the blindness of this civilization, but actually being active. And I'm trying to figure that out every day, just how we can put ourselves on the line for the mass extinction that's happening. We are up against the hour, so we'll say goodbye to our land-based stations. I'm Ayana Young, and you have been listening to Derek Jensen on Unlearn and Rewild. Our theme music is Like a River by Kate Wolf, and production is done by March Young. I have one final question, which will be included at the end of the interview on our website, unlearnandrewild.org. Well, I have so many questions to ask you, but I know that our time is running out. And if there's anything that you would like to end on or something that's on your mind, if you have any books in progress, ideas for books that you plan to write, or just what are some of the ideas that are currently driving you these days? Well, A, I would love to do it again. Let's let's set this up and, and do another interview. Um, and maybe, you know, we didn't really talk about the death urge and we didn't really talk about... I sort of skipped over your question about the relationship between patriarchy and the murder of the planet. So maybe we can talk about that next time. Um, I'd love to. If you'd like. <laughs> I would absolutely or, love to. Or whatever else you'd want to talk about. It's just one thing. Next thing is, I finished a book a couple of months ago. It's on human supremacism, which I think is the biggest problem facing the planet today. Or actually, supremacism itself is the biggest problem facing the planet. Uh, it's about how... You know, we consider ourselves as superior to everybody else, but all of the means by which we consider ourselves superior to everybody else are really tautological in that, okay, humans make tools, and so tool making must be a sign of superiority. Well, it's a rigged game. And what it really boils down to is they're all rationales. The ways by which we perceive ourselves as superior are all based on our ability to control others. And that's coming out next spring. Um, and then the following fall, I have a book coming out that I wrote a, a year and a half ago, or a couple years ago, that we're still editing a little bit. And that's a book on some of the problems in anarchism. 
Um, that's a pretty interesting topic. Um, then right now, I'm just finishing up a collection of short stories about the theme of monsters and turning that on its head. That's going to be out in another year and a half, too, probably. So um, that's some of the stuff I've been working on lately. I guess what I would like to end on is a story I've told before, but I just I really love. It's the smartest thing I've ever done, which is when I was in my 20s, I knew everything was messed up, and I knew that there were problems, you know, this culture's killing the planet, but I, didn't, I wasn't an activist, and I, I wasn't doing anything because the problems are so big, I didn't know where to start. And then I realized I wasn't paying enough for gas, and instead of just feeling guilty, what I did is I decided every time I spend a dollar on gas, I'm going to give a dollar to a local environmental organization because local environmental organizations are starved for money. But I didn't have any money myself, so the other option was pay myself $5 an hour to do activism. You know, once again, I was doing nothing at that point. So if I spent 10 bucks on gas, I would um, then take two hours to write letters to the editor or to, you know, after I, the first thing I did was write letters to the editor. Second thing I did was I started doing anti-fur demos, anti-circus demos, and then I started doing like uh, timber sale appeals. And within about six months or a year, I was having so much fun with the activism that I quit keeping track of the gas. And the point is that it got me off my butt. You know, what I want with my work is for people to get off their butts and do something. And um, I know the problems are huge, but, you know, I've said this before too. I, I never write a book. You know, I've got 20-some books out, but I don't write books because books are big and scary to write. How can you write 600 pages of text? Instead, what I do is I write a page, and then I write another page, and then before you know it, I've got 600 pages. And it's the same. I love this thing my great-grandmother used to say to my mom all the time when my mom was a little girl, which is, yard by yard, life's hard. Inch by inch, life's a cinch. So what we need to do is, yeah, we need to bring down this whole colossal system that's killing the planet, but that's huge. So what we need to do, we need to break it down into little steps, and we need to say, okay, today I'm going to defend this place, today I'm going to do this, and just every day we need to do actions toward, toward that end. You know, you don't, they didn't win World War II in one day, you know, it's step by step. And we need to recognize there is no one magic silver bullet that we can shoot that will stop the, the bad thing. What we need to do is to organize, to build up, to step by step do everything we can to dismantle it. Well, I'm very inspired to get off my butt right now and fight for this incredible planet that we inhabit. So thank you again, Derek, for your time, your words, your spirit. Well, thank you so much. Your questions are fabulous. Thank you, Derek.